Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Please have a seat, and you are going to want to be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, so if you have your, uh, your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to that chapter or look it up in your phone or whatever else it is that you have with you, Luke chapter 4. So as has been evident already this morning in our journey through the Christian year, we've come to the season of Lent, the season when we prepare for Good Friday and Easter for the examination of our hearts and souls and minds and bodies. It's a, it's a time of repentance and reflection, of giving away, of decluttering our lives, and a time of returning to the Lord. So who better to lead us on this journey than Jesus himself? So we are going to spend the next four weeks in the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter. In this chapter, along with Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, it describes a 40-day period in which Jesus himself was in a season of preparation for his earthly ministry. So we're going to, we're going to take a deep dive here into the temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4. We're going to learn about sin and temptation. We're going to learn about how Satan misleads us and how we can resist him all as we engage in Lent and march towards Good Friday and the cross and ultimately the victory of the resurrection. So today, we're not going to get past the first verse. We've got four weeks, though. We can go slow. We're not going to get past the first verse because there are a few very important assumptions and teachings, even in this first verse, that we need to explore for us to understand the rest of the passage. Okay, so let's dig in. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Okay, so Jesus has just been baptized. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, about why the timing of this is really important. And he has been sent out by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Matthew's description of this, the word that is used, that he was, he was cast out into the desert by the Holy Spirit. That it's the same word that is used when Jesus expels demons from people. Like he's thrown out into the desert. There's this, this push from the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. <clears throat> Why? That seems a strange way to start your ministry. Why, why is Jesus sent out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted? Because we're going to see over the course of the next few weeks that Satan himself comes to Jesus and tries to tempt him three times with three different strategies. And yet, Jesus does not sin. He does not give in to temptation. And something very important is happening here. The theological term is recapitulation. Okay, Let me explain what that means. It roughly means a restatement of the point of the story or a retitling, a new, a new chapter. That Jesus has come to change the course of all of history, to change the state of mankind's relationship with God. Okay, so 
If you know the story, the overarching story of the Scripture, the story of redemptive history about, about God, about man, about God's relationship with man, you know that at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the earth, He creates Adam and Eve, things are going swimmingly well, and then in Genesis chapter 3, things go very badly. Adam and Eve, our first parents, brought sin and death into the world by pursuing temptation and eating the fruit of the garden of which God had told them not to. Now, this is not about the fruit itself. It doesn't, it's not, there was not a magical fruit. It's about the rebellion. It's about the rebellion that Adam and Eve said, our ways are better than God's ways. To believe that our wisdom is greater than His. To believe that our pursuit of glory is better for us and for not, than, than for Him. That all of the joys and pleasures in the life that we search for, we can attain by our own efforts and not by following the ways of God. It is, that, it is that rebellion that is the point of the fall of mankind. That's when all of human history was got a little askew, or since we're here in the South, a little cattywampus. Right, the trajectory of things was instead of a trajectory of glory that led for, to Adam and Eve participating with God in creation and moving the glory and the beauty of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the, of spreading the garden into the vast wilderness of God, uh, that this was, this was what was the trajectory. They were, they were bringing the garden to the ends of the earth. But instead, what we see is that sin put us on a different trajectory. One that instead of creating life, brought about death, even the death of one of Adam and Eve's own sons when they killed the other. And so we need the story to change. We need the trajectory to change. Because, because as, it's, as we've gone farther from the gospel, I mean, from, sorry, from the garden, that we have seen sin spread, and thus we, here we are in a world of brokenness, of hunger, of war, of conflict of broken relationships. It's the result of sin. So, when, and talking about recapitulation, a restatement of the story, a, uh, a, a, uh, a new chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus as the second Adam, a new Adam who is coming. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As, the man of, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I know that's a, that's a heavy passage, but what I, what I hope that you can hear in that is that Paul is comparing the first Adam, Adam in the garden, the Adam that brought sin into the world, and now Jesus, the second Adam, who is, who is purposely brought out into the wilderness to be tempted, but instead of the sins of the first Adam that, that believed the lies of Satan and put us on a trajectory of death, now we have a new Adam who chooses life, who chooses obedience, that sets us on a trajectory then of healing, hope, and salvation. Recapitulation. 
the story has changed. Where Adam failed, Jesus has succeeded. Where Adam chased sin, Jesus pursued righteousness. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. Jesus is the second and last Adam meant to correct what went wrong in the first. And Jesus' ministry of bringing new life begins with Jesus changing the story of temptation. He is our Adam the source of new life. And this is one of the reasons why we're spending so much time studying this, because, because this brings hope to the world itself, right? That, it, that when we look at the world and its brokenness and the depth of the sin that ravages the world in which we live, it can, we can easily despair unless we understand that there is a new trajectory, a new chapter, that the kingdom of God is at hand and the order of God is, is coming and will come. There is hope because of what Jesus has done. And that's not only true on a world, on a global level, on a cosmic level, it's true in your life as well. This is what Jesus does with us. He recapitulates our life. He changes us. He puts us on a different trajectory. He brings healing and forgiveness for those places where we have sinned and become subject to evil and death. He and His mercy has come to us to bring forgiveness and a chance at new life in Him. A life pursuing wholeness rather than a life pursuing the things that kill us. Where sin is triumph, there is now forgiveness. And where temptation defeats us, there is now a way out from under its burden. This chapter not only teaches us of what Jesus, is, what Jesus has changed and what he is doing, but it also helps to make us wise in the way that sin and temptation work. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan has, is not necessarily overly creative. He has worked quite effectively since the beginning of time and works the same way in your life now. When you read how Satan has worked throughout the Scripture, if you are thoughtful and you reflect, you can go, yep. He's done that in my life too. 1 Corinthians 10 says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, your temptation is not as special as you think that it is. That people all over the world for thousands and thousands of years have experienced the same kind of temptation. And so this should not be a surprise for us. We're going to discuss the hunger of the flesh, the idols of the heart, and the doubts of our minds. And as we dig deeply into these verses, I pray that the Lord will try our hearts so that we can see where sin has rooted and find the healing of Jesus. So, in all of this, as we're talking about Jesus' temptation and then how that applies to us, what that looks like in our lives, how we can then, how we can then be wise of the ways of Satan uh, and pursue righteousness rather than, than sin as well, Let's talk about a couple of assumptions that this verse makes. Luke 4, 1 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. For this, for this verse to make any sense at all, there's a couple of worldview assumptions that we have to hold. And the first is this, that sin is real. If not, then temptation doesn't make any sense. So if sin is real, what, what is it? Basic definition of sin is that sin is disobedient to the righteous law of God. Sin is disobedient to the righteous law of God, whether that's 
in commission and things that we do, whether that's an omission and the things that we don't do that we should have done, whether that's just by our sinful nature and the rebellion that lives within us, sin is disobedience to the righteous law of God. Because as we have said, the ways of God, also called the kingdom of God, bring righteousness and wholeness and healing, while sin brings about destruction. Think about this. Just think about the Ten Commandments. They're all good ideas, really. The Ten Commandments. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet what other people have. Don't lie. Do honor your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. All really good ideas. Like there aren't, there aren't really, there's not really a lot of debate here. I'm going, well, lying, that's kind, that's kind of okay. No, I mean, they're pretty just basic moral understandings of things. Paul, Paul makes a list, the Apostle Paul makes lists of sins as well. He has a couple of different places where he, not exhaustive lists, um, but uh, that would be a long book. Uh, but, uh, but he just makes lists of sins in places like 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. And he, and he names things like anger and rage and malice and slander and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and drunkenness. He even slips in there disobeying your parents. It's really kind of funny when you read the list. He's like, theft and sexual immorality and drunkenness and disobeying your parents. And then he goes on, they went, wait, that seemed a little extreme in the midst of all of those other lists as well. Right? So every dad in the room is now like, wait, that's in there? <laughs> God's on my side in parenting my kids? Uh, every dad just has said, I think I'm going to read my scripture more than I have uh, in the past. So here's what I would say to you. Um, yes, God is on your side in your parenting as long as you are leading your family with sacrificial humility and righteousness, putting off, putting their flourishing before your pride and your vanity, then yes, God is on your side. If not, then he opposes you significantly, but that is another sermon altogether and perhaps one we could have one-on-one. So the idea of sin leads to destruction and righteousness leads to life. All of these things that we just mentioned, the Ten Commandments that we just talked about, some of the sin lists, do any of these things ever bring about good results? Like, who said, yeah, that adultery just worked out fine? It brings about destruction to families. It crushes spirits and souls. It ruins trust and relationships. Whoever said slander? Well, you know, slander really brought our office together. Like, all that gossip that we have, man, I mean... We are just a tight team now. Sin brings about separation and brokenness. Who said, you know, you know what the key to my healthy marriage is? Is my, my fits of rage that I have. That's really, that's really, I think, what has kept us together for years. No, because sin brings about brokenness. God is the source of all goodness, wholeness, beauty. He is love itself, and so sin is the opposite of those things. So to say that sin is disobedience to God's law does not mean that, that we should then adhere to a boring legalistic set of rules meant to take away our fun. That's, that's, when we think of things like, think of it that way, obedience. Ah, the word obedience doesn't sound fun at all. Like dogs go to obedient school, right? I, I, don't, think I, I don't think I want to be obedient. That doesn't sound like joy in that. Can I say that that is proof? of how much sin has twisted our very ways of seeing the world. Because what we're being called to is obedience to wholeness. 
Obedience to righteousness. Obedience to the things that actually bring about life. And God is calling us to stay in those things. That's a call to joy, not a call to oppression. Obedience and oppression are not the same thing. He's saying stay in the light. Stay where there's true, where there's true, passionate life to the full. Stay here. That's the obedience that we are called to. And not to the allure of sin. Because sin is deceitful. For another ring was made in the land of Mordor and the fires of Mount Doom. The dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all the others. Right? There's a, there is a, if you don't recognize the Lord of the Rings reference, you need discipleship, and we will bring that um, to you. Uh, <laughs> um, so there's this idea that, that there's an allure of, of sin that, that promises great things. Sin, sin doesn't necessarily look evil on the surface. It makes promises. There's a, there's a beauty to sin, but it's fleeting, and it's misleading. Sin is powerfully attractive because it seems like it will bring about joy and health when in fact it brings about disease and brokenness. It promises freedom and brings about oppression. It's heroin. It gives you a big high and then destroys your life. And this is temptation. Our focus for the next month. Temptation is the draw to sin. The pull. The enticement away from God and towards sin to believe another truth, another gospel, another way of life that, that is different from the way that God has said life actually comes. And to say it's the same sin of Adam and Eve to be able to say, no, God, thank you, but uh, we have our own ways and our own ways are better. It seems like it'll feel good when you're angry to rage but it brings about destruction and leaves you lonely. It seems like a little gossip and slander will give you the revenge and maybe even the attention that you deserve, but it pushes people away and tears apart relationships. It seems like pursuing whatever sexual urges we have will bring us pleasure, but in the end, it brings us destruction. Although none of these things are true, the promises that sin makes, they're quite convincing. And so we find ourselves again in the Garden of Eden when Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he says, I know God said, don't eat this fruit, but look at it. It's beautiful. And it says there in Genesis chapter 3, you can go back and fact check me, it's there. It says that they looked upon the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. They saw it and went, I think he's probably right. God told us not to do that, but God must be trying to steal our joy. God must be trying to take, take our lives from us. There's something he's holding back from us. There's a bigger joy than what he is offering. And so, so I mean, look at it. It looks beautiful. That is temptation. That is the deceit of sin. That is where Satan can just sort of nudge us in that direction. But the glory that was promised to them by Satan, the joy that was insinuated was a lie. And breaking God's law has created a world that is now rife with disease, brokenness, hunger, and war. And in a microcosm of the globe, so is your life. 
because those things that looked good and were pleasing to the eye and good for food have brought about brokenness and shame. To be tempted is to be drawn to believing the deceits of sin and be drawn to acting upon them. It can be strong and persuasive. And we even justify the sin that we desire. Entire philosophies try to teach us that there is no sin. That fulfilling our own impulses, our own feelings, our own desires will truly bring joy. That nothing is sin if we think that it's right and it seems good in your own heart. Temptation isn't wrong. It's the guide in our lives that leads us to fulfilling our own dreams and our own, and our own hungers. Ultimately, in that philosophy, you are God. You create the law. Ultimately, sin is throwing off the fatherhood and the sovereignty of God and replacing him with ourselves. I decide what is right. I decide what is wise. I decide what is good. I decide what is going to bring about life. Just like Adam and Eve did. How's that worked out? Sin is real. It's objective. It's universal. It's personal. And it's corporate. And so in discussing discussing temptation, if we believe that sin is real and temptation is the draw to it, then the opposite of sin is obedience. And so we're going to listen to one voice or the other. Either the voice of God bringing us truth in what life, in the life that, uh, that is abundant, and he calls it, or the voice of temptation that is calling us elsewhere for our source of life, that we will find those cisterns dry. But we're going to listen to one voice or the other. And we need to pay attention to the true source of the voices that we follow. And so if the assumption number one in understanding this passage is that sin is real, assumption number two is that Satan is real. We don't want to talk about this much. We don't like the idea of a malevolent being actually playing a, a, a part in our lives. This is superstition. This is, this is silly. Right? We, don't, we don't want to talk about that. But the scripture is quite clear that Satan and his fallen angels are real. The same scripture that tells you that Jesus is real tells you that Satan is real. And so if you're going to affirm the one, how can you then dismiss the other? Satan is real. And they do, in fact, engage you and work upon you and influence you. Now look, not every temptation comes from without. Satan is not behind everything that you do. You are perfectly capable of sinning quite notoriously without any aid. But Satan is real. His minions are real. And this is an important truth. That nudge that you feel towards sin is sometimes your own sinful nature at work, and other times a literal moment of cosmic warfare. And temptation is not ultimately about you. It's not like Satan thinks you're so important that he has to attend to you It's because you are a bearer of the image of God. And he wants to destroy and warp that image. It's God that he hates. It's God that he opposes. And the very fact that Satan is coming against you is because you bear the image of God. This is a war that is bigger than just us. But one that we are in nonetheless. And it is important that we recognize that. Because sometimes our ability to rationalize our own sin is not just our superior intellect, 
It may be the influence of those who would have you away from Jesus. In other words, if you do not know that you have an enemy, you will not resist him. 1 Peter 5 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our hope in studying this chapter deeply over the following weeks is to recognize the work of sin and temptation in our lives, to see Satan at work, to see our own sinful nature leading us to temptation and then to resist it. Now, here's an important point in all of this, though. Temptation is not sin. Let me say it again. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is being drawn to sin. Seeing the lure, the allure of sin is not sin itself. Jesus was tempted and yet did not sin. In fact, Hebrews 4 says that very specifically. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted. Temptation is not sin. And this is an important thing because sometimes we feel like if we have been tempted that we've already sinned anyway, we might as well just jump right into it. Right? We've already lost the battle, so we might as well, while we're here, just enjoy it while we can. Temptation is not sin, and so therefore it can be resisted. And then you're like, well, Dan, wait a second. I've read my scripture, and it says, Jesus said, if you're angry with somebody in your heart, then you've already committed murder. So if I've already done that, I can at least cut them off in traffic, right? And scream at them as I go by and point their gaze towards heaven in a particular gesture, right? Like I, that'd be fine because I'm already, already angry with them. And so, so I can now, I might as well just do this. It doesn't count against me anymore. I've already murdered him in my heart. Welcome to Satan in your life who has just twisted the scripture for you. Because that's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, every week we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, what we're praying is, Father, don't let me be governed by my temptation, but by your leading. Don't let me lead myself. Don't let Satan lead me. Let me follow your voice. There's Temptation can be resisted. Sin can be pushed back. These truths, that sin is real, that your sin nature draws you to it, that Satan seeks to mislead you into it, means that combating sin and resisting temptation are not simply behavior management. Here's what I mean. This is not a sermon that said, get your mess together, behave better, stop it. Your willpower will not save you from this. How's that New Year's resolution going for you? Right? You've lost all those pounds, haven't you? You've been to the gym every day, just like you said you were going to in January. Your willpower is not strong enough to combat this. What does it take to combat sin? God himself becoming one of us and dying on the cross to bring us forgiveness and raising from the dead and the resurrection to bring victory over sin and death and giving us his Holy Spirit to live with him. It takes God to overcome sin. The only thing that will, replace, that, will, that will allow us to resist sin is a greater affection. A greater affection for Jesus than for our sin itself. And even that comes from God. Willpower is exhausting. 
And so when we hear these things, we don't have to look at them and go, I just don't, Dan, I just don't have it in me. I'm just too, I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired. I don't have time to resist. I know there are places where I need to get better, like I need to eat more vegetables or whatever, but I just don't have, I just don't have the energy. And I say to you, recognize what is truly at stake in sin and throw yourself on the grace and mercy of Jesus. The one who has resisted temptation and then defeated death itself is now at work in us. He has given us his word so that we can test those voices to know what is real and what is not. He has given us his Holy Spirit to help us change our very affections of our heart. He's given us the community of the church in which to work through these things and to be vulnerable with one another so that we can assist and help one another. You'll notice that Jesus was tempted most severely and sorely when he was alone and hungry in the desert. And that's why God brings the lonely into family. That's why the church exists. So this is how we wrap up today. Sin is real and destructive. Temptation is real and powerful. Satan is real and active in your life. Temptation takes grace and effort to resist, but it can be resisted so that we can pursue holiness, so that we can conquer sin, so that we can bring healing and truth. And although these things are heavy, what should permeate through all of this discussion is that there is hope. There's a new story in the world because of what Jesus has done. There's a new story in your life. Grace, grace and mercy for those times when you have fallen and continue to fall. That forgiveness is offered to you and strength is given to you for you to be able to forgive others so that they don't continue to oppress you with the sins they have committed against you in the past. Jesus has broken the free, the captives, has broken their chains and set the oppressed free. There is grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, and there is strength in his people and in his Holy Spirit and truth in his word. May we turn to Jesus. May we find new hope. May we mature in our faith so that we will begin to resist temptation. We have normalized so much of the sin in our lives that we have stopped resisting it in many cases. And may the witness of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the example of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus come to us to say, no, there is a new and greater life that we are called to that glories and honors God in his kingdom, and it's different than what the world is offering May the Lord grant us faith to believe that his way is best. So over the next few weeks, may the Lord bring us an awareness of sin, a perception of the work of temptation, healing from our sins, and a deeper desire for him. And if even talking about these things has brought up for you deep wounds or fear, don't deal with these things alone by your own willpower. You leave yourself vulnerable and weak. Press into the church. Call for help. We are offering over the course of Lent opportunities for you to be able to confess your sins in person to someone else who keeps those things in confidence and brings, your, uh, brings you and, uh, and your sins in prayer before the Lord. Take us up on that. Begin now not to bootstrap yourself and say, from this moment on, I'm going to do better about my temptation. But instead, call out for mercy. Call out for grace. Call out that the Lord will fill you, will heal you, will forgive you, 
and raise your voices in worship of the one who has recapitulated the story of all human history and the story of your life as well. Lord, have mercy. Amen.